I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, Free Exchange host and editor of CapEx. My guest this week is Matthew Goodwin. Matthew is a political scientist at the University of Kent. In recent years, he's established a reputation as one of the most insightful and interesting observers of populist movements and insurgent parties. Matthew, along with co-author Roger Eatwell, has just published a book on the subject of national populism. In it, they do away with numerous myths about populism and offer a guide to the parties and ideas that, whether we like it or not, are setting the running in political systems across the West. I spoke to Matthew about his new book, about why populism is on the rise, what populism's opponents get wrong, and whether the likes of Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, and Matteo Salvini are the new normal. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So national populism, uh, in the way that we define it, is a movement that prioritises the uh, interests and the culture uh, of the nation uh, and seeks to give voice to people who feel neglected uh, or even as though they've been held in contempt by elites, whether political elites, economic, uh, or even media. Um, and that makes it distinctive from fascism, which was revolutionary and was much more focused on race uh, and, and uh, ethnicity. And national populism partly is, but, but also partly is not. And our book is about pushing back against some of these misleading caricatures. And you're talking about national populism, not populism. So in that sense, you're I, maybe this is the wrong way of thinking about it, but you're talking about basically right-wing populism, not left-wing populism, in the sense that you're not talking about Corbyn or Syriza or these sort of arguably quite populist movements too. That's right. We avoid the term right-wing because we do think that increasingly the right-left framework is coming under pressure. Um, left-wing populists are very different in that they principally prioritise class over national attachments. Um, and they're also much more interested in economic uh, issues than they are cultural uh, issues. Um, and national populism is, a, is also a term uh, and a way of defining these movements that for us, I think, draws as much attention to what these movements seek to include than what they seek to exclude. Now, what I mean by that is the debate over populism, the global debate, focuses heavily on what populists want to exclude. So whether it's you know, immigrants, minorities, the establishment, those kinds, of, those kinds of things. But that, I would argue, distracts us from the power, the potency that comes with populism from what it seeks to include. And it's seeking to give voice to the national community, or at least to a conception of the national community. And that's really what allows it to get this durability that we, we often underestimate. And so I'm going to put to you a, 
a version of recent political history. Uh, I'd say this is a sort of maybe the, the Nick Clegg version or the kind of Ramona version, which is that, or at least one of them, which is that the, um, the rise of expressions of what we're talking about, national populism, such as Trump and, and Brexit and so on, um, were the, the last howl of an older, whiter, a less tolerant part of the electorate. Um, and, you know, this is a generational problem that will basically go away because essentially populist voters are dying and uh, we've got newly minted younger voters are coming up on the inside. What's wrong with that theory as, as you see it? Well, the first thing to say is that's a very popular theory because uh, you read it often in the FT and The Economist and Nick Clegg and Vince Cable has made a version of that saying <clears> that <throat> Brexit was a byproduct of angry old white men who want to go back to the days of empire. Um, there are a number of problems with that argument, but just before we get to the problems, just remember why it's so popular. It's so popular because of the implication. The implication is that if you think this is all about generational change, you don't really need to do anything. It's just a waiting game. You just wait for these awkward populist voters effectively to die and be replaced by younger, tolerant, liberal generations. That I mean, in some cases with Brexit, that's explicitly the... I mean, that, there are some that, that who explicitly is, say we should have that, another vote because X number of people have died. Yeah, that, and, that idea is, is voiced frequently. And as an economist who's actually calculated that if you assume birth and death rates remain the same, then Remain moves into a, into a clear majority position by 2022, right? These fanciful calculations. Um, there are a number of problems with that. Now, the first is if you look at the base of support for populism across the West in general, uh, it's often younger than people think. It's from the under 40s or in some cases the under uh, 30s. You know, Marine Le Pen in France did very well among young women. Matteo Salvini in Italy drew his support evenly from across different age groups. Um, Brexit is not like those movements. Brexit was only partly populist. There was about mm. seven in ten leavers who said they had voted for the UK Independence Party or they would consider doing so. But even Brexit, about half of 35 to 50-year-olds ended up voting to leave the European uh, Union. One in three black and minority ethnic voters as well, by the way, which doesn't sit easily with Vince Cable's caricature. Um, but also that debate completely misses out life cycle effects, the fact that you know, as each year of our lives go by, you and I will probably become 0.38% more conservative as each year passes. Now, you might already be there. I might already be there. Who knows? But the, the point about life cycle effects is that it reminds us that we're not on a linear generational journey, that we have changes, social changes, generational changes in how we see the world. The argument that was first put out there about generational change, by the way, was first made in the 70s when a chap called Ronald Inglehart argued that liberals were going to completely, and I mean economic and social liberals, were going to take over the world. Um, and of course, uh, those voters, many of whom are now voting for Trump or, or voting for Republicans, Conservatives, and so on. Um, so, so the progressive belief, at least, that you know, the, the arc of history must always bend in their direction, I think you can actually challenge that. I think even if you don't agree with me and you, you think there is that this process is happening, I would still say, well, you are exaggerating the, the, the scale and the pace mm -hmm. of that change. And who knows? You know, all kinds of things can happen, as young people in Europe are discovering you know, sometimes... You know, young voters too feel left behind and shut out of the economic settlement.
It's also a very limited explanation, isn't it? Because it doesn't explain why now. It doesn't explain, you know, if, 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 the, if the arc of history argument was true, then we would be sort of over, we would have been getting steadily less populist in our politics over the last hundred years, I mean, which obviously hasn't been how things have, have worked. So um, let's talk about another popular theory, which I'm, I'm sort of teeing you up here to, to knock down some of the other theories about populism, which is that basically you can explain national populism pretty much all pretty much all of it comes down to the financial crisis and this is just the political turbulence that we feel after economic turbulence what do you make of that kind of explanation yeah well i mean that it's a very popular view it's it's found its expression in books like crashed um by adam twos which recently just came out and again he traces populism to the post 2008 crash martin wolf and eft has made similar arguments we've had a, a vigorous discussion about the effects of uh, China and Chinese uh, imports, particularly on the Rust Belts and on, on parts of uh, left behind uh, Britain. Um, but um, it, it, it's very misleading. Uh, if you just look at the life cycle of these movements, you know they were often well on their way long before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, it doesn't explain why some of the most successful uh, national populist movements have come in Switzerland, in uh, the Netherlands, in Austria, in Sweden, in Poland, uh, strong generally economies, if not strong, certainly growing economies with low unemployment. Um, and northern Italy, you know, Lega and Matteo Salvini, again, very prosperous, quite secure areas. And I think, you know, these examples kind of push back against what, you know, the argument that I would, I, I would suggest the left particularly likes, which is that all of this is about economic scarcity, that it is the old Marx, Marx line that um, anti-establishment, uh, anti-immigration uh, uh, movements partly um, are driven by concerns over economic competition. Um, the evidence, I would suggest, is, 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 is nowhere near as convincing as they would have us believe. And of course, what both of those explanations that the old white people and the economic explanations had in common is, as you said, they, 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 the first one that makes you think it's, um, well, both sort of play into the biases of people that peddled them in the sense that they kind of make the populism problem go away. The, the implication of those being wrong is that the thing they have in common is that actually these are not just protest votes, these are actually votes for a set of um, policies and ideas that national populist politicians are are pushing. So, you know, your theory is one in which you actually have to take the ideas more seriously than, say, the, the, the Liberal Democrats or the, or, or the Adam Tuzes of this world would. Yeah, and I think this is a critical point, that uh, protest theory is very popular, again, among people who don't want to accept or deal with the fact that the grievances on which these movements are mobilising um, are firstly partly legitimate grievances, but are also leading people to vote for the national populist message, not just against the system and the, and the status quo. And these parties, um, as we argue in the book, are making a number of promises to voters that they are promising that they will put the people back into the conversation. They are promising that they will um, try to curb the influence of increasingly detached and at times quite insular political elites. And they are calling for you know, greater economic protection or uh, reformed political systems that, that give more power down to the people. Now, some of these parties do so while being openly xenophobic and some of them do so while being openly Islamophobic at points. But but in general, 
Um, I think that the, the, the argument that all of this is just a kind of irrational, um, temporary backlash against the status quo is, is misleading. And your own theory, you and your co-author's own theory, is, comes under the, what you call the four Ds. So do you want to talk us through those? Yeah, so it's, it, this is just a, it, it's a device to get people interested in, in the evidence and summary that, that, that there are four deep-rooted currents that are sweeping through West, uh, Western political systems that are reshaping those systems from below and really creating some strong foundations for these movements. Um, distrust, uh, deprivation, destruction, and dealignment. And each of those really relates to um, some long-term uh, trends within Western democracies that are going to supply these movements with ongoing potential. Distrust relates to the fact that you know, large numbers of people, you know, millions of people in the West, not only feel that they don't trust their elites, but they also feel that political parties and politicians have become increasingly uh, less representative of society as a whole. Now, there are some legitimate criticisms there. Our politicians have, on balance, become less representative. They've become more highly educated, they've become more affluent, they've generally become more socially liberal. And you might say to me, Matt, what's the problem with that? I would say, well, it's not necessarily a problem as long as the policies that they enact are actually responding to every group in society in a roughly fair way. Um, and what's clear is that non-graduates and workers are, are clearly not being responded to in an adequate fashion and have good reason to feel that they're not at the table. In Britain, for example, only 3% of MPs have any experience of manual work. About 18% have only ever worked in politics. I mean, generally, we are not building a chamber that is full of diverse uh, uh, experiences. And without sort of laboring through, you know, all of them, destruction relates to kind of fears over national ways of life and values being destroyed by a period of unprecedented demographic change, a period of unprecedented uh, immigration, particularly in Western Europe and the US. That has sparked some very strong fears about uh, how that, that process is, is unsettling social norms, challenging communities. Um, and deprivation taps this notion of relative deprivation, that it's not how much money you have or uh, you know, what you've objectively got in your pocket or, or in your bank balance, but is actually about a sense that you are being left behind relative to others in society. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the Brexit vote, people who felt that compared to others, they were being left behind, even if they were on good incomes, were overwhelmingly more likely to vote for leave. Whereas those who felt that they were doing reasonably okay compared to others, or even better than others, basically were far more likely to vote to remain. Now, what I'm not saying is this is all about the white working class, because it isn't, because relative deprivation taps lots of people, mm. um, you know, relatively affluent middle-class conservatives might feel that you know, they're not actually getting what they perhaps feel entitled to or that they feel des that they deserve compared to other groups. Um, and lastly, dealignment, which is a way in which our political systems are dealigning. And what we mean by that is that the bonds between traditional parties and the people are breaking and they're becoming much weaker. So if I said to you, do you feel strongly attached to a particular party? You mm -hmm. might say to me, well, Matt, yes, I do. Or you're a think tanker and you're in, the, the, you know, you're in Westminster and you're, you're, you're an outlier. Most people now, I think, reply, well, I might have a weak attachment or I might not have any attachment at all. And this is now 
reaching some pretty striking levels. In Sweden, its percentage of identifiers is down to 27%. Uh, in the US, the share of independence is at a record high. In Germany, the number of non-aligned voters across generations is at a record high. So when you say to me, well, look at all this volatility and these new parties breaking through, I say, well, it's not a surprise because we don't have the stickiness, we don't have the glue, we don't have the, the tribal loyalty in politics that we used to have. And to be frank, I'm not entirely sure that it's going to come back. Well, then one of the, of course, on that, on that point, one of the lessons is, um, you know, national populism can work inside and outside the system. So you can have a, you can have a Trump style thing where you take over an established party, or you can have a, a, a new party that, you know, you can have, you get winning the European elections. Well, that's absolutely, that, that, that's the point. Now, this is a subtle, nuanced point, but one I think has a lot of power, which is that, where's Western Europe going, right? Um, when we have parties like Five Star in Italy that can be founded and win an election within 10 years, that's highly significant. When we have Emmanuel Macron, who can step outside the party system, start a new movement, become president within two years, that's highly significant. That, that tells us mm -hmm. that volatility is very high. I think one possible future for Western Europe might actually be in Central and Eastern Europe. And what I mean by that is you don't have the strong tribal allegiances there. You don't have the deep roots. You don't have strong party identification. And so what you see in those systems is constant churn, new parties winning and then getting replaced by even newer parties, and those parties getting replaced by even newer parties. And it becomes a cycle, an ongoing cycle of churn and change. I'm not saying Britain will go down that way because we have a very strong two-party system, although we do have a lot of volatility under the headlines a lot of voters moving around uh, underneath the uh, first-past-the-post system. But lots of systems in Western Europe are looking pretty vulnerable right now. AFD in Germany comes out of nowhere almost to take over 90 seats in the Bundestag, is now in 15 of Germany's 16 state parliaments. If you'd said that to me in the late 90s, that Germany would have a populist party at that level of success, mm -hmm. um, I probably would have laughed you out of the room because the old argument was that Germany has these social norms that basically defend it against populism mm -hmm. because of you know the Nazis and the Second World yep. War. So it's a very interesting moment for Europe. I think we're in a very fragile place, and I'm not entirely convinced that where we're heading is going to just be a resurgence of strong and stable mainstream centre politics. Mm -hmm. So we've got, and in those in those in those uh, four Ds, basically, there's it's kind of half questions of how politics is done, right? So how parties work, how representative politicians are and so on. And then half of it is substantive policy, economics, and so on, um, in the deprivation and the destruction point. Yeah. Clearly the biggest issue, if you're going to point at one issue, one actual <laughs> policy area, clearly the biggest issue is immigration. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, do you, can you imagine kind of defeating populism, if that's something someone wanted to do? Can you imagine doing that without taking serious substantive action on immigration policy? There is an argument which is yeah. it's about the messaging and it's about being in touch with people and listening to people. Is that does that version work or can or is it just a question of you know there's only so much immigration voters will take? I think your question is alluding to a very interesting debate that we've had over the last two years since those big political shocks in 2016, which is is this all about economics or is it about culture? And that debate is raging in the social sciences. And if you lean a little bit left or very left, you say it's economics. If you basically um, 
are sort of centre-right, you tend to say, well, it's mainly about culture and migration. And the, the, the debate is raging. Um, we argue you, you can't separate the two mm-hmm. and that re- the real world doesn't really work that way. But the most important driver is indeed migration and worries over how it's affecting nation-states, changing nation-states, and also how ethnic change is unsettling societies. Can you fix it without dealing with immigration? No, I don't think you can. I think the the response that democracies like Sweden and Denmark are going to get into, I think, will be lowering overall migration, working harder on integration policies, and allowing a new national story, a national community, in effect, to uh, have time to integrate and 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 before then perhaps progressing with change. This is what we saw in the US at the beginning of the early 20th century. The overall share of the population that was foreign born was about 13%. And during the Kennedy and Johnson eras, it then basically declines and then begins to increase again to where we are today. It's about 14, 15%. And it will get up to about 18, 19% in the coming years. Um, but America had that period where through the civil rights uh, era and also through the 50s, 60s, 70s, they were at least able to build this sort of national story, this integrated community. Um, I think Europe might be in a sort of similar point. I mean, Europe has got a lot of challenges, um, but one is how, how do you build those integrated societies and actually respond to public concerns over migration and the refugee crisis, people clearly wanting greater external security, if not in the coming years. I would suggest internal security. It's going to be difficult for Europe to deliver on that, but it's also going to be difficult because Europe is aging, especially Central and East European states. They are depopulating. If you look at Lithuania, if you look at Bulgaria, if you look at Estonia, if you look at Hungary, some of those states are forecast to shrink effectively by up to 40% by 2040 or 2050. That is going to have a considerable effect on social care systems, tax base, all that kind of stuff. So they have two options. One is they lure people back from Western Europe. Uh, the other is that they have significant inward migration. Perhaps a third, actually, is they increase their birth rate and they try and um, try and increase the growth of their population. But but those are basically the only options. Now, now, why I think that's tricky for Europe is because those are exactly the same states that are the most likely to feel anxious about all of this change anyway. So how are they going to navigate that that dilemma? I don't know what the answer is. Those states will not be able to have restrictive migration policies because they don't really have any migration to begin with, really. Western Europe, I think, they'll have to increasingly adopt a more conservative approach on these issues, and we're already seeing that, right? I mean, Macron is the outlier. Europe, I think, is moving right quite quickly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And I think moving moving on a bit in the argument, the most important point you make in your in your book is or at least the message that needs to get through to people, if there is one, is that this is not a flash in the pan. So this is not just a, do you remember the, do you remember 2016 when suddenly... We were when everything went crazy. Yeah. You know, basically that populism <laughs> is, is here to stay. Yeah. Uh, why is that? Because of these deep-rooted currents that we are underestimating. And also, you know, even in 2016, people forgot that, you know, this period of political change began in the 80s and the 90s. And for those of us with longer political memories... You know, I'm sure listeners will remember Jean-Marie Le Pen in France. They'll remember York Haider in Austria. They'll remember Umberto Bossi in Italy. Um, they'll remember the progress parties in Scandinavia. And the consensus, certainly among most of the academics, is that the current wave of national populism really began in the late 70s and the early 80s and basically it's gathered pace. And 2016 was really a kind of crescendo moment, if you like. Um, and that, to me, says that, you know, as we go into those European Parliament elections next spring, as we go into the next round of elections in Germany or in Italy or in, in even Sweden and Netherlands, these parties are going to be, I would argue, relatively permanent features on the political landscape. They can have one of two effects. They can either start winning elections outright, as they're doing in Italy, or they can actually drag the mainstream over to their positions, as they're doing in some countries, like you might argue Britain. I mean, the Conservative Party you could argue, has been fundamentally reshaped after the rise of the UK Independence Party and the vote for Brexit. I mean, there were always these traditions within the Conservative Party, but I would think Mayism, if there is such a thing, and I'm not entirely convinced there is, um, but was partly a response to a moment that was partly shaped by national populism. Uh, and then one of the consequences of the um, fact that they had to stay and they're winning is that... The, the, the argument and the politics will evolve to a point where basically populists aren't just outsiders trying to get elected on a promise of radical change, but they're actually fighting elections on um, their record in office. And, uh, Donald Trump's obviously the mm. most prominent example of that. And so you've got this kind of chilling, if you're a sort of centrist, the chilling thought that, you know, what if populists are elected? We, you know, we all thought that these policies were crazy, but actually the voters quite like the policies. And... Um, you know, it's it would be a mistake to discount that mm. possibility. I think you're right to to point to that. I think the issue that we had, you know, I mean, to go back to Blair. In some ways, it some ways it all begins with Blair. Um, but if you think about where we are with Brexit and everything now, and you think about the Blair argument, what did Blair really say to voters? He said that you're on a bullet train. It's called globalization, and it's going three thousand miles an hour, and you can't get off. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. Effectively, that's the third way. It's here to stay, it's inevitable, get on with it. 
Some voters over the last five years have discovered through national populism or simply by withdrawing from politics altogether that they, they can get off the train or they can at least slow it down and the result is not Armageddon. And this is the awkward point for centrists and for mainstream operators, which is Trump, whatever your politics, right? He's a divisive guy, but America has not yet disintegrated because he's in the White House. Italy has not yet disintegrated because Matteo Salvini is in government. Britain has not yet disintegrated because people said, I want to leave supranational integration. I want to leave the European Union. This has now created what I would argue is an alternative state for people, an alternative way, if you like, of being that, um, picking up on Catherine de Vries' arguments, who's a political scientist, you know, she makes this very interesting point that Brexit is partly an alternative state for Europe. Now, it might not seem it at the moment because we're following the minutiae of the negotiation, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, there will be an alternative state and it will be awkward for the European Union, for other member states, for people that are looking and maybe Britain will not have collapsed and be thriving and that will be awkward. But in the same way, national populism is an alternative state for people and it, I think it, 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 if anything, you know, credibility is important and what your ordinary voter has learned over the last five years is that if you vote for these parties, the roof doesn't necessarily fall in. And all the data suggests that if the roof falls in a little bit, they're fine with that. I mean, that, that, that basically that they're willing to sacrifice, specifically they're willing to sacrifice economic growth to some degree. Um, well, we latched on to rational choice theory, particularly with Brexit. We said, this is all about GDP. People didn't vote to be poorer. Well, no, but they voted for other things. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't a, an economic cost-benefit choice. This was about reclaiming sovereignty for national institutions. It was about lowering migration. It was about gaining greater control over the nation. Um, and it was about distancing the country from what levers perceived to be external risks within the EU, whether those were distant institutions, whether it was immigration, free movement, whether it was terrorism, whether it was non-elected governments, whether it was a dismissive European elite, whatever it was. Um, but, you know, they, they clearly were focused on external risk. Remain have since, in my view at least, not really reflected on that point and have doubled down on the argument that this is about economic cost-benefit analysis. And clearly voters have told us it's not. I just think there's been a complete lack of imagination within the political debate. Like, how would you apply? I mean, how would you have replied as a political operator to Brexit, right? What would you have done in response to the vote to leave. I, I think I probably would have said, well, let's have electoral reform. Maybe we should move some institutions outside of London. Maybe we need to think about why coastal communities have had no inward investment for 30 years. Maybe we need to think about reforming immigration. Maybe we need to even go further and have more referendums at the local or regional level or citizens' assembly instead of the House of Lords, whatever it is. What was the reply? There has been no reply and that's a problem because a set of demands have been put on the table and at some point as a society as a community as a nation we are going to have to deliver a convincing and compelling reply do you think part of the problem is people kind of uh, this is silly but they're just sort of overthinking it all in the sense that there's you get you know in america especially you get very over the top uh, warnings about what donald trump is 
similarly, you get over the top warnings about what Brexit represents. And so people forget just to sort of listen to the to the voters rather than, you know, sort of over, over, overthinking the nature of the threat to democracy. I think there's certainly a very there is a tendency to to descend into alarmism almost immediately. I mean, we've seen that in Britain where every major electoral contest pretty much since 20, the 2014 independence referendum in Scotland has been based on fear of some description. And I think we are now dealing with voters who are immune to those narratives, that voters are not just go, going to go along with this descent into alarmism and in some point, you know, hysteria. You know, the, the US, I think, my own personal view at least, and we talk about it in the book, the US has responded very poorly to Trump. The Democrats have doubled down in the same way that I think Remain have doubled down in, in Britain. But now they've kind of got themselves into a cul-de-sac and there's no, there's no way back once Trump starts wheeling out his next offer. And, you know, Trump will have an offer for voters. He's got a lot to say. Personally, I'm not a big fan of Trump, but it, from a strategy point of view, he's got tax cuts, he's got a conservative Supreme Court, he's building a wall on the southern border, he's standing up to China, he's standing up to the EU, he's asking other nations to pay more. Now, you know, if you are Trump's strategist and you just whittle down all these things that he's done, it's a, there's an offer. There's an offer there for conservative Americans, right? What's the counteroffer? Because so far it seems the counteroffer is basically well, Trump is a narcissistic, terrible human being. Well, that's priced in, right? People know that, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's a priced in factor. So what's the new offer? And I think that that gets us into the more interesting conversation about, well, how can social democracy and the centre-left respond to this moment where people have clearly concluded that they want conservatives or they want national populists to be in government? What's the offer? What's the new idea? The third way captured the, the kind of mid to late 1990s, early 2000s zeitgeist. You know, the rise of globalization and, and how the left can accommodate itself to market forces. Well, what's today's zeitgeist? If we go, if we, if we go along with your theory that the populists are here today, assuming we, especially people don't sort of learn the right lessons, is that, um, is that a less democratic political place? I, I think, you know, to be honest, and this is going to make me very unpopular among my friends on the left, that I think the jury is out. I think the jury is out because um, populism is also a corrective. This is the controversial argument that people really don't mm -hmm. like to engage with. But thinkers like Margaret Canavan and Laclau and, and, and others have this nice argument, I think, which is that populism can be restorative it can rejuvenate democracy when issues are left off the table when groups feel that they're not represented sometimes you know political systems move so far away from these groups or these issues that they need to be snapped back and populism kind of serves that function so canavan for example who sadly passed away this year uh, argued that as long as we have democracy we will have populism in one form or another we might have a few quiet years we might have a few loud years but we will always have that because it, there's, there are irreconcilable tensions within democracy that there will always be groups that feel they're not at the table or there will always be these tensions that get mobilised so I mean I'm not 
of the school that says all of this is absolutely terrible, all of this is a return to historic fascism, which it clearly isn't, and all of this is an outward eruption of racism. I think the data points in a very different direction. Our societies are becoming uh, less racist, not more racist. Um, but it does, it does mean we need to take the underlying grievances a lot more seriously, and some of those are legitimate, and we need to deal with that. That was Matthew Goodwin on national populism. Thanks for listening.